Our scripture reading this morning is Lamentations 3, Lamentations 3, verses 40 through 66. It can be found on page 874 in your pew Bibles. I wish that we would be able to have taken the entirety of this poem in one sitting so that we would not lose the thread and the context of this poem itself, but we elected to go through it in three segments to better understand, to better dig into what is going on there. But I want to draw attention again to what was the flow of this this poem from the Prophet of Lamentations. Verses 1 through 18 had been this deep, painful cry of lament from the prophet's own voice. It was a very personal cry. And then there was a shift that began in verse 19 and really extended through verse 33 on the faithfulness of God as he, as he taught the people, even in his own experience, to turn and to, to set your attention on the character of God himself, to know his goodness, how to wrestle that lament into a praise, into a trust in the Lord. But now you see as the poem reaches that, that zenith in the middle, now we come to a point where it, it starts coming back down, where there, there again is laments here that find their, their expression, and again in deep pain. And so the second half of this poem mirrors the first half as there is again an expression of grief, but it, but it turns more to a communal lament, a communal call for repentance, as well as one that has a hope within it now. It's tinged with hope. So that's the layout of what's going on here. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, we turn to your word, to a beautiful portion of your word, as your word is before us, and all your word is is one of beauty. Father, we pray that in this text we would understand and see not only how to respond to grief and suffering, but as well to hear a call for repentance in the midst of it, to see how to best look for and root out sin. So often you do bring us to these places for many purposes, but one of which is to to reveal to us areas where we need to grow. And this is a an immensely gracious act that you do for us and that you do so that we might better serve and know our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our prayer, Lord, something beyond us, but something very capable for you in the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would work this in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled And you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. 
Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, Do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. You will curse. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May bless it to our hearts and to our lives. People of God, there's a fairly well-known book written titled Lament for a Son. In this book, the father recounts his deep grief at the loss of his son at a young age. His son was in the prime of life had been traveling, had been an avid rock climber, mountain climber, and had perished in a climbing accident. And so this book is exactly what the title implies. It's a lament from the father for this son. And in and on its pages, he just pours out what he is feeling, what his heart is, what his heart has experienced. And in many ways, it parallels what Lamentations is, this expression of deep, pain and deep grief. And even as you read the book, if you haven't experienced such a loss, you you can think to yourself, this man truly understands loss and grief. And if you have experienced it, you would likely find a kindred soul, one who does express well what your own heart might be feeling. Well, even as we talked about last time, that is what Lamentations is for us. And that is what Lamentations 3, verses 40 through 66 are for us. And why do I say that? Because it doesn't end in verse 24, on the faithfulness of God. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. That's not how the book ends. And it doesn't end uh, in verse 33, on the heart of the Lord and, and, and why he might even cause affliction. It doesn't end there either. Rather, even in the structure of the book and the structure of the poem itself, there's been a hard-won victory of faith, but, but now it, it turns back into, into the battle. And it's, it's not simply declaring the righteousness of God, it's now taking that truth and applying it when it's, it's back into the pits and into the difficulty and into the pain and into the grief. If it would have just ended at Verse 24, we would have no doubt had a wonderful expression there at the end, but as Lamentations is a a book for lament, for grief, it follows that path, because you don't just reach that time of hope and it's done. You don't just reach that time where your faith has finally clawed its way to see the goodness of God in it, and poof, the battle's won. No, it continues. Even in the structure of Lamentations, your struggle continues. The prophet's own struggle continues. And even he now turns more from himself to to the people, but as well as how his situation relates to the people. The fact is, there's still work to be done, even after we've set our gaze on the character of God. 
Now we turn to put it into practice, and at times, we almost feel as if we've gone all the way back to as, as we began. Or I could put it this way, it seems like Lamentations 1 comes back to us again, even after we've seen God, and, and, and wonder why couldn't it just stay? Why couldn't that breath of fresh air stay with us? And, and we could continue on in, in a great example of faith. That isn't God's will always. But instead it is to fight yet again, to turn to him yet again. For, for in the time of Israel and this lament, their, their persecutions weren't finished. Their deliverance hadn't been revealed yet. There was yet to come 70 years. 70 years of exile, 70 years to search God's word, to remain faithful, to, to see a faith tested for that time. But we see in these verses a hope-tinged call for repentance. That's our first point. A hope-tinged call for repentance. I say hope-tinged because it's, it's not so evident, it's not so clear that hope is just dripping from the page. But there is a hope now that tinges the words like there wasn't before. Lamentations 1.1 through Lamentations 3.18 was without much hope. The hope couldn't be seen. But now, proceeding on in the rest of the book, even amidst difficulties, even amidst restatements of what was said earlier in the book, there's, there's elements of hope. And that's what we see, even in a call to repent. As I alluded to earlier in the service, even that is a hope-tinged activity, a call to repent that's what we see. You see that the change of the last section had ended in verse 39. We didn't actually look at those verses last time. We focused on verses to, to the end of verse 33. But if you read in your Bibles verse 39, you'll see what the prophet had said. Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? What he was saying there was, in light of what they're going through, why should they complain about it? Why should the people offer this complaint in light of their sins? And so what's happened is he's brought up this, this topic of sin. Lamentations has never hid the fact that the people had sinned grievously, that they were guilty before the Lord. And so now he's dealing with this. It needs to be dealt with. There needs to be a repentance. The, the people had sinned, and this is what brought the judgment upon them. That's what they're facing. But, but notice what he did. First, he turned the people's attention. He turned himself to the character of God. And, and he turned them to hope, and then he turned them to a call to repent. In light of the character of God, in light of who God is, and in light of what we're experiencing, we repent. And so, verse 40 is then the beginning of a communal call for repentance or to return, to turn. Very common phrasing in God's word for repentance. And it's a very apt description. A turning around. Turning away. Turning from what you had been doing turning from that life, turning from professions of other gods and pagan nations, turning from what even the people had believed. What, what did the people believe in that day? They thought Jerusalem could not fall. They had false prophets assuring them of that. It was only the, the, the very few true prophets of God, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, who would, who would say to them that, no, there is judgment coming and you cannot thwart this. You must accept it. Judgment will come. 
But no, the false prophet said, no, God would never do that. For, for God to do such a thing would be God not to be God. And then what happened? They were judged. Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were scattered. And that thing that they thought couldn't happen, that thing that would disprove the very faithfulness of God occurred. And, and what are they left with? Not only a smoking ruin of their city, not only the death or deportation of everyone they knew, not only the, the rape of innocence, not only that, which is horrible enough, but that question in their very hearts, is God even real? Is he even with us? Or has he abandoned us? Is he weak? Are we, are, are we gone now without a deity? Are we gone without a covenant? And, and what is the prophet saying? Turn Turn away from that. Turn back to God. You see the, the hope tinging that statement. To, to say such a thing means then that yes, this, this came because of judgment. Yes, your sin was being judged here. But to turn back to God means he is still on his throne and means this was in his will and means that he hasn't utterly rejected you. Otherwise, why would you call the people to repent and to turn back, to turn to him? It's a mark of the grace that there's even a remnant that can turn back, right? God could have very easily destroyed every single one of them, and it would have been right for him to do that. It would have been right insofar as their covenant unfaithfulness and the judgments that should have fallen against that, but God is faithful to his covenant. And so for him, he wouldn't utterly destroy his people, and in fact, he has always functioned to save those he's chosen, a remnant of his people, and so his faithfulness is there. As you're searching for God in grief, we search for him through repentance as well. We search to him through repentance to see the sins that, that interfere with our walk with him. To see what we have done that is wrong and to turn back to him. Notice verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. This is a stark verse. And it might even cause that, that fearful question in your mind is, is it true? Is it true that God would not forgive his people? That's what some want to say. Some interpret the, this verse and say, what's happening here is that, that God's proving himself unfaithful, that what the prophet said in verses 24 through 33 was all wrong, that now he's seeing that they've transgressed and rebelled, but God won't forgive them. What's going on in this verse? Some want to question this, but that's not true. That's not, that's not what's being said here. You see, this is meant to be stark, but it's also a description of the people's current position. He's describing the situation they're in, and what situation are they in? The people are in still a rebellious place. They have not turned yet to the Lord, and the Lord, yes, has not forgiven them yet. That's just the status of where they're at. Up to this point in the book, there's been no repentance. There's been acknowledgement of guilt. There hasn't been repentance for the sins done. And that's what the prophet's calling. You see, this isn't a description of justification, confession of sin and, and justification, like God, from a heartfelt, sincere repentance, wouldn't forgive someone. That's not what's going on. He always 
answers that truly repentant call. There is always justification for that, but this verse isn't describing that. It's describing their current concrete plight. They are a nation struck, a nation that is rebellious, and a nation that has to turn to the Lord and has not yet done so. So he's saying, repent. And then the following verses describe the punishments of that situation. It's a catalog of the continuing inaccessibility of God or their felt experience that God cannot be found, that the suffering of the people is here described as a felt experience. This is what they feel. They sense being not yet forgiven in these verses, in verses 43 through 47. But it's not a contradiction of God's own character and ways. This is only the start of that call for prayer and confession and that the people would turn there. Verse 42, the prophet's acknowledging that fact and continues to describe it. Verse 43, God wrapped himself with anger and pursues us, killing without pity. This is because they are rebellious people. They have sinned. The judgment is coming on them for this. This is a description of what had occurred. And then verse 44, you see this this cloud. And and what's very likely being described here is, is a cloud in God's word often applies to his very presence, the presence of the Spirit. It was a cloud, a pillar of cloud that would guide the people. It was a pillar of cloud that would descend into the temple itself. And though this may just be poetically describing more of an obstacle or an obstruction, that's possible, but this could as well be a description that the very presence of God, that, that cloud presence that had before signaled his presence with them, is now an obstacle through which they can't seem to get. They can't seem to even see their prayers flow through this obstacle. Again, it's the felt description. You see, they're, they're seeing what's going on, and the prophet's talking about it in concrete terms. They're judged. They're under judgment. The, the hand of the Lord is upon them yet, and for them to know they've been forgiven is for that to end, is the removal of that disciplinary, punishing hand to take that away, and then they know that they've been forgiven. That's also this description there. That's also what's being de- applied As I said earlier, this half of the chapter mirrors the first half. And the prayer of the people that seem to to be unable to reach God is mirroring what the prophet said in verse 8. When his own prayers couldn't seem to reach God, when his own suffering and, and difficulties felt like God was unable to even be faithful to him, that's what he had felt. But now, in this cry of despair... There is, again, a a tinge of hope. The very words of complaints are themselves a part of a prayer, a prayer that, that the prophet even expects will at some point be answered. He's describing himself in a current situation and time, not not what God will always do, not who God will always be. As one commentator says, Israel's current experience feels like a divine unelection. And yet, as such, the reader knows that things are not the way God wanted them to be, and this also creates a space for hope. You see, this is not functioning the way that God has has ordained, and I don't mean by that this is going against his will. I mean his will for the people. The, The covenant faithfulness of God is one that extends past the judgment, that there's a greater design in it. And so in that, there is hope. 
and that there's a space for that hope to know. You see, the, the, the affliction of God's people, that isn't the norm. That isn't the right place. The people of God shouldn't be exiled. They shouldn't be cast away. They shouldn't face this, this obstacle and obstruction with God, and they won't. They won't. They need to repent. And upon repenting, upon returning to the Lord, they will know the faithfulness of the Lord. And and God is the one working that turning and that repentance. Calvin says, Thus our prophet prescribes to us a certain order that we are to examine our whole life and that being influenced by the fear of God, we are to return to him. And notice this. For while God treats us with severity, he still kindly invites us by ever offering to sinners a free pardon. That's what's going on here. It isn't uncommon in grief and suffering to see sin. In fact, it is often in grief and suffering that we see sin. That doesn't mean that in every case of suffering, it's been caused by sin. In Israel's case, it was. And we need to be aware of that. We need to examine our own situations, our own sufferings, and and, and ask ourselves, how much of this is self-inflicted? How much of my grief and suffering and pain in this situation is because I've been running from God? God will allow great amounts of grief and suffering as a gracious act for you to turn. That he uses to to show you that your, your suffering and grief are because you have been disobedient. That's what's going on with the people there. And so we better ask ourselves that question, how much of this is because I'm not repenting and I'm not turning from what I've done. And so I'm... I'm flinging at the Lord laments of grief and saying that there's obstacles. You're not faithful, or I feel as if you're not faithful all the while. You haven't repented or turned or seen your guilt and your sin. So that's one point of application. How much is our suffering a a ground for us to see that sin that's even causing it? But I want to even go a step away from that because in many instances, too, the lament, the grief, the suffering is not coming on us since we sinned. It's not as if the cause of our difficulty was our own wrongdoing. But there's still a true principle and true application to be made here, even in such places where where you may not have done something or be doing something to bring upon the burden or the trial. You are still in a better position in the midst of that suffering and grief, to see sin that besets you. It's a point made by Paul Tripp in one of his books that as we enter suffering, you you never enter your suffering or grief as a blank slate, as as if you're entering it and and you're newly placed there to to be set upon by influences and how you respond to that. No, you enter every trial and suffering as yourself, with your sin, with your baggage. And oftentimes the very trial that we enter and face is made far worse by our besetting sins, by how we are, how we respond. Or those, those sins are actually the worst part of it. 
that the difficulty we're facing is one we, we know that we've, we haven't done to ourselves, but we know that in it we're not responding as we are because there's dysfunction. You see, even that is a gracious act of God to, to allow his people to go through times of grief or suffering and then to be able to see, you know, through this process. And, and this is true of all of us. I've certainly experienced this. I know so many of you have as well in, in the suffering. It's when you see, you know, I'm not thinking of God rightly. It's been this difficulty that made me see I didn't know truly what the faithfulness of God was. And I was holding him to a standard that was my own creation and not his. That I was thinking of him in wrong ways, that I, that I was doubting him, or that I was, I was not actively pursuing him. I wasn't in rebellion, but I, I wasn't seeking daily to draw near. And so this, uh, this strike of the Lord or whatever is facing me in my life is that much harder because I hadn't been drawing near. Sometimes we, we experience it in, in a great strength of faith. And even then, it's like, it's like taking out a, a fine grit sandpaper and, and just polishing off what we already know. Right? You, you use these you use lower grits for the, the hard sanding of wood. You use an 80 grit sandpaper and you're taking a bunch off. You're, you're taking a material away at a much faster rate. But as you approach the finished product, you're not coming at it with that coarse grit. It's much finer. You're, you're coming at it and you're, you're sanding it with, with 220 sandpaper. There's some who get that, I hope at least. You're, you're sanding it in that way and it's becoming very smooth and finished and refining. And that as well happens in suffering. And so I hope we would see in this call to repent that it, it applies to, to us all. Know again that your grief, your suffering may not be caused by the sin, but you're placed in the position to better see, to better see your need for God, to better see and trust in him. You see, lament and confession are not supposed to be linked as if all laments are caused by our sins and need confession. But lament and confession are often close companions, for the one helps us see the other. Lament and confession are often close companions, for the one helps us see the other. People of God, turn to the Lord and repent. Or even if you're in a time of grief, use this opportunity to see how is my own sinful nature contributing to the grief and, and, and that I'm experiencing? Is all that I'm doing as it should be? Am I, am I really seeing Christ for who he is? Or does this trial place me in a better position to see how to latch on to him, to, to place my faith in him? And so though the poet feels this pain and grief, now we start seeing as well more clearly the hope. Look at verse 50. This is, it's so easy to pass over this verse, but look at verse 50. I'm going to read 49 into 50. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. Why is this hopeful? Because you see, you see there, there's an end conceived of. Up to this point, it was as if this strike of the Lord would last for eternity. It would never end. But now, he says, his eyes will flow with tears until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. There's an end point seen. 
There's even hope that there could be an end. And I extend that to you, to those who right now are in great grief. That grief will end. There is an end point fixed. It may not totally be on this earth. Often it is, but it will certainly be in heaven. The grief, the pain is not unending. The the Lord looks down and he sees. He acts. So the end is conceived of. You see here as well the prophet's devotion to lament for the people. And we need to learn and hear that call as well. We need to let lament be a fixture of our life and our prayers, not only for ourselves personally, but for others, others in our family and the church body and the world itself, the tragedies that we see. Let lament be an active part of your prayers. God's word is full of them. Full of them. And, and why would that matter? Because it's, it's, a, it's glorifying to God to see the situation and see that's not right. That's not the way life's supposed to be. That doesn't bring God glory. That brings me pain. That's an act of love. It's an act of love to be bothered or in pain or grieved by the brokenness you see. Why? Because you're reflecting God himself. And it's, it's bringing before the sovereign ruler on his throne the, 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 the situation. Not that he doesn't know it already, but it's our prayer. It's, it's being even a mediator, an intercessor, to, to come before the Lord on the throne and say, this situation is grievous, it's sad. Will you see and act and look? Lament. And our second point, deliverance past and deliverance future. This we see in verses 52 to 66. Praise this deliverance past and deliverance future because it seems likely that what's going on in these verses is the prophet's own description of personal trials that he had faced. This is why many believe Jeremiah is the prophet of Lamentations. Much of what he describes here is, is what had occurred to him and, been, and been, he had been treated with by the enemies of God's people, even in God's people. The false prophets, the kings, those who had had actually put him in these places, burying him, throwing him into a well, things like that. And so what do we see? We see that the the prophet here is putting forward his, his trials, but the deliverance that came from that as the example, not only to repent, but to know that with this repentance and turning to the Lord, there is a deliverance as well. And he's using his own situation and example to show that. He's then a representative of the people. So though everything he describes may not have occurred to him, occurred to him, exactly like this, it may have, but he's representing the plight of the people, but taking it upon himself and, and saying, this is what I experienced. That's likely what he's saying here. We are called at times to be well acquainted with trials and fears, even as this prophet himself had been. You read these verses in, in the description and you see that he was in a time of deep distress. Look at verse 455. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. The pit. It would be a literal pit, but that very poetically, that, that's likely meaning the grave. He's, he's calling to him from death's door. That's where this is coming from. That's where he had been led to the place where there should have been no hope, it seems. One commentator says about this, This passage ought to be carefully noticed. 
For when Satan can't turn us away from prayer, he tries to burden us with our weakness. How true is that? When Satan can't turn us away from prayer, he tries to burden us with our weakness. Have you not felt the spiritual battle? Spiritual battle, you're clinging to your faith. Your faith is not in in question, but you feel weak. So weak. And this is what faces you. You you have questions like, will God hear such a miserable one like me? It's almost the reverse of what we've talked about earlier. You're almost so in tune to your sins that you think, I trust the Lord, but can he he hear me? One who's so miserable, one who is so sinful? We have questions, what can we do? We tremble, we're anxious, we're so weak, we we can't even seem to tolerate one of the thoughts that comes into our heads. It seems to undo us. Uh, In in such situations, I've described myself, and some will ask, how are you doing or something? It's in some anxious time or some suffering time. And and what you want to say and what it feels like is, well, I'm never more than two thoughts away from, never more than two unguarded thoughts away from a nervous breakdown. That's the way it can feel. That, that if that affliction, that thought just comes, it'll just, you're, you're weak, you'll, you'll topple. That's, that's the way we can feel. But what produced the prophet's perseverance, what got him through, it was a clinging to the Lord even in the midst of the pit. To be drowning is what he says in an earlier verse. Drowning is what he was experiencing. And, and he clung to the Lord even in his weakness. And this brother and sister is extraordinary faith. Don't listen to Satan and his minions or your even self-doubts in those situations that though you're clinging to the Lord, you think that, that there is only weakness in you. You may feel that way, and indeed you are weak, but that faith that you're clinging to is all that you need. It will see you through. That's what he sees, an an extraordinary amount of faith. Faith overcame, faith gained the victory. The prophet did not stop crying to the Lord, did not stop lamenting, even from the pit, even from death itself. And then see what happens. Verse 56, God heard my plea. Verse 57, you came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Those moments in the pit, those moments in deep distress, feeling the seeming wrath of God when all of a sudden a certain clarity is lent to our minds and we see what God's doing and what God's care is and how he tenderly tells his children, do not fear. He hears the plea, God hears He speaks tenderly to us, his people. You see, all these are reasons for us to follow the Lord, to turn to him, to trust in him, searching for God in grief, to repent, to trust. The rest of the poem shifts to the enemies and to the nations, to to the enemies of the prophet himself, and till you see in verse 66, you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. The enemies of the prophet found themselves... Now, instead of the vehicle of torment and destruction against the people, they would be judged by the Lord. The enemies of the Lord, even within the people themselves, are, are destroyed and pursued. 
And so we see how the end of this poem now has tinges of hope. It began describing these, but the differences at the end are telling. Now what we see is that there is a clear understanding that not only will God continue to thrust down and hurt, it isn't just that. Now he arises up as the defender of who? His prophet. His suffering servant. It's as if the, the example and the words of the suffering servant, if they are heeded by the people, but the example of the servant himself, it's as if God arises up because of that. And now he will strike the enemies down. You see the change, and before it was only despair against what the people were facing, and now it's no, God will not only hear and answer, not only does he say, do not fear, he arises up and is our chief and greatest defender. And protector. When we think of lamentations in this way, we begin to see a greater truth and a greater depth to what's going on. One pastor describes this verse as a lentograph. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. I didn't know what that was. It's a it's one of those pictures that you can see that as your vantage point changes, so does the picture. And so what you had initially seen here before you that looked clear enough, as you walk to the side or as you walk away, it, it shifts and then we see a different person. There's, there's pictures like that where you can see one, one figure, one face, but then as you move you actually see that from this vantage point there's a different person, there's a different face in the picture. And this pastor wonders, and I think rightly, if chapter 3 is a grand lentograph of Christ himself. That, that, and one vantage point as we're looking at it from the, the, the place of Israel, there's the prophet, perhaps Jeremiah. There he is. He's clearly seen. But as you step away in Scripture, as redemptive history occurs, you begin to see, is, is this not also a description of what Christ himself had gone through? And I think rightly so. Why? Because Christ experienced what were the penalties of covenantal disobedience, though he was not himself disobedient. He experienced the judgment that Lamentations is responding to, the strike of the Lord, the inaccessibility, it seems, of God. It seems as if God wouldn't, wouldn't relent from the judgment and wrath. That's what the people were facing. That's what Christ faced. And it's true and, and undimmed form the full measure of God's wrath. And the prophet, the prophet, a, a prophet is in, in many respects always pointing to Christ. He's holding an office that is revealed fully and truly in Christ himself. And the prophet is setting himself as an example. He's saying, look, I know deliverance of the Lord. This is what I've experienced. The Lord here heard my plea. Repent and turn to him. Well, is not Christ the one who had the wrath of God placed on him to be that example for us? You know, this is certainly what Christ achieved. There's a, a nagging question that could go unnoticed. You know, Lamentations is asking the question all the time, how, God, how could you do this? How could you be so judgmental towards your people to seem to show such heartlessness? That's the question, but there's actually another question that you would, you would rightly ask of this, and that's how could God show mercy? 
We cannot question the justice of the punishment itself, but we can question the deliverance, right? We're guilty. The covenant people have here. You see, at the, the reason the prophet could know deliverance, the reason God's people can know deliverance, is because Christ was in a grave and a pit, and it did close over him. That's the description here, then. And we see as we move that, that so much of Lamentations does find itself answered in Christ in a, in a unique way. As the man of Lamentations, the man of lament himself, but as well as the prophet of Lamentations who doesn't waver in his faith and not only receives deliverance personally, but achieves deliverance for all the people and, and, and then can be the prophet's call, Repent. People of God, turn to the Lord. The past deliverance of the people of Israel shows you this. We can turn to the Lord as God's people. God's people have done so in the past and were forgiven. People of God, turn to the Lord as the past experience of the prophet of Lamentations himself shows. He's the example who knew this personally. And people of God, Turn to the Lord, deliverance won by Christ produces hope for our own future deliverance. Amen. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you to praise your great name, knowing that what we have read here is a, a, a call to trust in you, a call to repent and sin, call to make lament, and we pray that's exactly what we would do through the proper interpretation of your word through Christ himself. It is in him that we make pleas for repentance, and it is in him that we trust for deliverance. It's in him, even in our current griefs and trials, that we see your heart and your character to us, the deliverance you've given. And, and we can even say, if, if, if Christ can be ours, if you've given Christ to us, is there any lack? Would you, would you withhold anything from us when you've already given to us yourself and your Son? Be with those hearts here who are grieved, and be with us, your people, who seek to follow in their example of those who've gone before and direct our gaze to Christ as we search for you in grief. And may we find you in Christ. We pray this in your name.